Hello and welcome to the Motor Racing Passion Podcast, brought to you by Breakthrough Health and Wellness. We're back for 2022, and with me again, as usual, we've got Daniel Blattman, Adam Blattman, and Brock Schaefer. Now, in 2022, our biggest worry at the moment is whether racing events will get cancelled or not. But for this episode, we're going to go back to a time when the biggest thing we had to worry about were cars getting cancelled or racing programs being cancelled completely. And with that in mind, we'll be discussing Nissan's Le Mans 24-hour LMP1 effort from 2015, which produced a car that was not only short-lived, but remembered for all the wrong reasons, the Nissan GTR LM Nismo. Daniel, I'll go to you first. Now, putting aside for a minute what the car ultimately turned out like, do you remember your initial thoughts when Nissan revealed in May 2014 that they'd be entering the outright LMP1 class at Le Mans in 2015 against Audi, Porsche and Toyota? Yeah, I was massively excited. Um, it had been not a long time coming, but uh, a few murmurs because I remember Nissan had basically been dominating from an engine provider in the LMP2 mark. So there was a lot of discussion around them jumping up to the main class. So when it finally got confirmed and that it was a full factory tilt, um, yeah, super, super pumped for it. And, um, uh, you know, obviously a lot of quality drivers around the program. I remember Nissan had invested heavily into their, you know, online uh, online gamer to professional driver um, concept. So there was a lot of interesting um, thoughts and people tied to the program. How about you, Brock? Well, outside of Japanese GT, I've, I'm not really a Nissan fan. So um, when I heard the announcement, if we're being honest, I wasn't wasn't really excited at all. And I didn't really think anything of it uh, because, you know, if it's not a Calsonic Skyline in Japanese GT, um, just probably won't do it for me. And you're probably not regretting you didn't put too much um, thought or effort into the getting excited about it. I would love to, I would love for Nissan to do something to really capture my heart. Um, but this effort was not the effort to do that. What about you, Adam? Yeah, well, it was cool to um, you know, see that Nissan was coming back in the, you know, the top top flight of sports car racing, going back to, um, you know, when they ran the R390. Um, for that, that was really cool to see, and hopefully, from the outset when it was announced, it was hopefully going back to up against the the the, the other big marks uh, that were already in LMP1. So it was exciting to hear. Um, but yeah, as as we'll go on, it quite wasn't there, was it? No, unfortunately not. I mean, I was pre- I was pretty excited that Nissan had signed up. They were going to be the fourth manufacturer, along with Audi, Porsche and Toyota, as we'd mentioned, in LMP1. And it had been basically 1999 since we'd had four major manufacturers in the, in the top class. And ever since then, you know, we'd had the Audi domination in the 2000s and then Peugeot came along to give them a bit of competition in the late 2000s and then... Then we had Toyota announced they were going to join for 2012, but then as soon as they joined, Peugeot quit. So we were still stu- we were still stuck on two manufacturers. And well, the old story that you know two manufacturers is obviously better than one, but you're not comfortable at two manufacturers because obviously if one pulls out, then it leaves one. And what's why is one unless you're Audi? Why is one manufacturer going to stay around all by themselves or Toyota at the moment? Yeah. But so then we got Porsche 
in 2014 and everyone said, oh, well, you know, well, that's your third manufacturer, so, you know, you can be comfortable. But in my thoughts, in some ways, three manufacturers in a way is no, no better than two because if one pulls out, then you're back, you're back to two and you're worrying again about another one pulling out. So I thought once if, with four manufacturers, I thought, you know, sports car racing is really getting back to how it was when I grew up. And Nissan, as Daniel said, they'd uh, they'd had an engine LMP2 engine program and they'd been ramping up their interest. And obviously, as Brock said, with Japanese GT, they had a great heritage in GT racing there. This just seemed like the natural progression into sports cars and um, and Le Mans. If you, if you look at that as well, you think 2014, oh, sorry, 2015, when we had the four manufacturers for that one race, but then the class itself was done in 20, the end of 2017. So you think like it grew to arguably its peak in 2015, but within two years or two years, three seasons, it was done as, as a class. So it shows you how quickly the sports car landscape can change positively or negatively. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you look at it from 1999 to 2000. Mm, yeah, but yeah. or even you compare Le Mans, say 1995 with Le Mans 1997. Um, sports cars have a funny way of um, have well, the landscape, as you said, changing really, really quickly. Yeah, and even you think when um, Peugeot pulled out 2012 through till like 2015, like that um, that grew very fast, and there was obviously a lot of positivity around the. Um, almost said hypercar, not hypercar, but the um, yeah LMP1 hybrid formula, and then uh, yeah within the same amount of time it was all it was all done and it was too costly and you know we're on to the next thing. So um, yeah, I think it's one thing we're never going to get away from with the class. It's what makes it good and what makes it uh, challenging at the same time. So Nissan have had a um, they sort of started to get serious about Le Mans in the um, in the mid 80s. And for 1986, that was their first um, attempt at Le Mans in the, well, in the outright class, which at the time was um, obviously Group C rules, and they were in the C1 class. They started with uh, with a March chassis for their works program. I guess probably from an Australian point of view, of those early early efforts from 1986 onwards, of local interest to us would have been 1988, where uh, Alan Grice and Wynne Percy were in. Uh, were in one of the main Nissan entries in 1988, as at the time they were the factory Nissan touring car drivers in the European Touring Car Championship. I mean, those early efforts showed promise, but not uh, not results. Then for 1989, the uh, the program was taken, well, the, the Group C program was taken over by Nissan Motorsports Europe in England, uh, run by a familiar name to us, Howard Marsden, and this culminated in 1990, Mark Blundell's famous pole lap in the Nissan at Le Mans, where he took pole by six seconds. Looking, I checked out that lap um, on YouTube just to um, you know, re-familiarise myself with something outstanding. What effectively made that lap? Was it traffic? I think traffic was part of it. And I think I think Mark Blundell just had a crack. I've... I've heard an interview where he said that they they'd had a they'd had a few problems during that qualifying session, and he he struggled to be able to set a set a decent lap, 
and he just that lap he just he just put his head down and went for it and he, it must have worked out with traffic it's still phenomenal like you know look back on it so um 238 mile an hour down the animal. Yeah, that's moving, isn't it? <laughs> the closest comparison, that's probably the Indy 500 in qualifying. Like, they're doing, what, two, 220 mile an hour? But the other thing is that's that's the era of super whiz-bang qualifying tyres that explode after one lap. Yeah. So um, <laughs> that is super cool. Other interesting thing about that pole lap was that was the first year with chicanes on the Mulsanne Strait. That's right, because they changed what uh, eighty nine was last time at the straight, so it was a ninety year. But in, in that time, so late mid mid to late eighties uh, um, for it, Nissan were kind of spreading their wings through motorsport through the world, like they were hitting up Australian touring car, you know, European touring cars, world sports cars, um, you know, always big in Japan. But was that kind of like their they, they did a big push everywhere instead of just um, focusing on a couple of areas? Uh, well, they had, I think the sports car program was their, that was sort of their main international um, effort because um, they put a lot into Group A in the mid-80s. Mm. And, the, the, yeah, and they, they, they had, the, uh, had the Le Mans effort starting in 86. But by 1990, they were doing the full championship and... Um, as well as Le Mans. But then after 1990, they pulled the pin and pulled out of uh, Group C racing. Was there any main reason that, that they came out? I can't recall from being there since I was only two <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, but, yeah, is there any, looking back in in the history, was there any reason why that was known that they pulled out or they just changed their direction? Part, part of it was the Group C rules were changing for 1991, Basically, they were banning turbos, and you had to have a Formula One spec three and a half liter V8. Right. Yeah. And they weren't in F1. Well, or or V10 or V12. Um, basically, it was a yeah. You had you had to have a Formula One spec three and a half liter engine, normally aspirated engine, and also the the FIA and the ACO organisers of Le Mans, they were they were arguing. And that um, I think the politics of that played a part as well in Nissan pulling out. Mm. But they um, Nissan wouldn't need, wouldn't return to Le Mans until 1994, when a couple of US-based Nissan 300ZXs competed in in a, as a class car, and uh, they did win their class. And then for 95 and 96, um, some Japanese-run Nissan GTRs ran in the GT1 class, and ran okay but they're not um certainly not pace setting cars it wasn't until 1997 when the nissan r390 that was when nissan returned for a major effort at winning the race when you think of nissan sports cars the first image of a car that pops in your head is it the lamar cars or is it the imsa cars probably the imsa car jeff brabham yeah same and that's interesting. So why is that? From an Australian point of view, maybe because Jeff Brabham drove it, but also they were very successful, the US-based effort. It's just a bit strange that they were so successful. I mean, I know they were different cars, but they were similar. Yeah. So successful in the US in IMSA and have never won a Le Mans outright. Different teams um, running them? 
Yeah, the um the team that ran it in America, yeah, wasn't um wasn't the team that was running running them in Japan or um or in the world championship in Europe. Yeah. The other Japanese manufacturers like Toyota, right? And I feel like this is important and ingrained in Japanese culture and it trickles into motorsport. So if you look at Toyota, whatever they enter, they hang around and really give it a good shot. If you look at Honda, they hang around and really give it a good shot. Whereas Nissan dip their toe in and then vanish. And it's so different to the other manufacturers in my opinion like just observing and i don't know maybe that's why i've never gotten behind nissan but you feel if they had the same sort of grit and determination that toyota and honda have that they would have done much greater things and this would be a completely different conversation um and it wouldn't be about a failed le mans effort but do you think they um like when i think of nissan you look at their touring car pedigree I mean, that stands out way more than your Toyotas and your um, Hondas, for example. Do you think they just ultimately invested in different areas, if that makes sense? The touring cars were like Australian, you know, like the Godzillas that dominate Australian touring cars were built by Australian teams. And, I mean, you know, you hear interviews and they say, you know, there was nothing like them. I mean, Japan couldn't believe what Australia had done with them. So... Although they were Nissans, I wouldn't class that as like the Nissan organization making those touring cars what they were in Australia anyway. Yeah, no, but sorry, more just the wider brand. I mean, taking aside the, but I just think like, yeah, their sports car legacy, apart from a Polar, um, at least in Europe, isn't strong. But when you think of their touring cars, it kind of, um, I mean, feel like that's like that's what they're uh, they're known they're known for. Yeah, for sure, especially like in Japanese GT, you can't knock them at all. But I don't know. I I'm telling you, Nissan just don't run me up the wrong way. So I'm probably um I'm probably <laughs> looking at this from all the wrong angles. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, the uh the Nissan R390 GT1 program started in 1997. Nissan teamed up with Tom Walkinshaw Racing to run that program in 97 and 98. In 97, they 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 were considered one of the uh, one of the one of the front runners for the race, but they never, well they didn't have the reliability and not quite the pace. And then '98, they had it. They ran really reliably, but um they got four cars in the top ten in the end of the 1998 race. But they never they were never looking like they could have won the race really on pace anyway. But you've just summed up Nissan's sports car heritage outside of America in a sentence. Yeah, that's interesting. You you would have thought teaming up with TWR. It's interesting that program didn't deliver more. But look at who they're up against, though. Like that's the like that car is absolutely stunning. The R three ninety. So that's I think that stays with me and the years driving that thing round on Grand Tourism on the PlayStation are uh, still pretty vivid. But you think like you know what they're up against Yoast Porsches. Uh, Mercedes um, in '98, um, Toyotas in '98. Like it's, we've talked about it for peaks and troughs, but that was uh, very much verging on a peak period for the class. So, yeah, they weren't successful in that that period, but I'm like, they were up against some pretty stiff competition. How did that car go around Trial Mountain? 
manual. <laughs> or the mini ring. Yeah. It was good in a straight line. I'll give it that. I saw the road going one at the Sydney Motor Show. No way. Oh, that is an event we need to do a podcast on. <laughs> Reminisce about the Motor Show. What, one thing with that Nissan R390 program, I mean, they only ran at Le Mans in 97 and 98. They, they didn't do a full FIA GT championship campaign. That surely must have played a part in it as well. That wasn't uncommon, though, for the time, though, was it? Yeah, well, Toyota did the same thing. Yeah. It's a shame those two, you know, because, I mean, that they arguably could. I mean, they could have helped to keep the championship going, although a lot of manufacturers jumped off GT1 cars after 1998. But Yeah, and you think, yeah. Yeah, Mercedes did the same thing in 99. And, yeah, it's, um, yeah, like, I think to say, like, was it unfortunate? Yes. Was that the difference between them being successful and not? I don't think so. Probably not. You're probably right. I think more racing can't have hurt, though, it's particularly with TWR running it. I'm, I'm actually surprised. I mean, I, I know TWR were running the um, Volvos in the British Touring Car Championship at the time, but, I mean, they'd run touring car programs and full-season world sports car programs alongside each other before. Well, I mean, I mean, the same goes for Toyota at the same time. I mean, all that effort for just one race a year. Is Is that the thing, though, about... Le Mans, especially in that time, that's where all the value was for manufacturers and the championship was not meaningless but just didn't have the same value um, for the manufacturers. So I'm actually, to your point, I'm surprised they just maybe didn't do a lead-in race, like the one before Le Mans, to test it out. But, um, but yeah, I think it was uh, pretty standard for the time just to base whole programs just around Le Mans. I guess from the Japanese manufacturers, that back in Japan they had access to the, their own proper racetrack so they could run reliability tests and everything like like that at their tracks, but it doesn't match actually racing the real thing, which, you know, as you point out, if they did one or two, could have that pointed them in a different direction for the actual Le Mans themselves. Nissan had sort of hedged their bets in 97 and 98 as well. They, they had the official... Nissan program, obviously running the GTR car, the GT1 car, but for '97 they'd also supplied an engine to a BRM prototype. The car lasted only 24 minutes in the race, but it did have a pretty good driver lineup, being um, Hazus Paraja, who, amongst other things, he drove the um, the Repsol Walter Brun Porsche in the sort of late '80s, early '90s in world sports car races. Uh, LSAO Salazar the former F1 driver, and later he'd obviously drive for AJ Foyt in the um, in the Indy Racing League. And Harry Toivonen was the third driver. Harry Toivonen, the brother of the late Henrik Toivonen, and um, an accomplished rally driver and racing driver in his own right. And then for 98, Nissan also supplied engines to two garages, but uh, both of those retired, which was, I guess, their way of sort of as I said, hedging their bets and running both a prototype and a GT car. And then for 1999, the TWR R390 GT1 program was cancelled and Nissan Japan would run their own LMP prototype called the R391 for the 1999 Le Mans 24 hours. They hedged their bets again, though, in 1999 as they had their own R391 LMP prototype but they also 
bought a Courage chassis and fitted it with a Nissan engine and ran that as a factory entry from themselves as well. And then, not not to confuse things, but then Courage Competition, the chassis provider, also ran their own entries in the race with Nissan engines, and that actually ended up being the highest finish for a Nissan car in the event, finishing in sixth. So the the switch to prototypes wasn't, I mean, it was only a one-year program. With that in the end, that wasn't overly successful either. But is that, like, you look at that and they've, they've spread themselves supplying engines at that time for that program and then for that where do you think if they concentrated their effort that that could have yielded different results well i don't i I don't overly understand their 1999 approach or is it kind of like we've got all these all, all these spare motors built up let's uh who wants them let's team up with someone yeah i mean the r391 showed promise they would have had some angle to um also run a factory garage chassis but then it was ironic that then the chassis provider ran their own entry their own separate entries and, and ended up finishing high finishing higher in the race but then that, that ultimately led to nothing because at the end of 1999 um, nissan cancelled their factory involvement at Le Mans and in international sports car racing along with about 25 other manufacturers at the end of 1999 <laughs> that's what i was going to say what was in the water at that point Y2K, maybe everyone thought, "Mm, not sure what's going to happen when the old 2000s come around, so let's... Yeah, but Nissan out kind of, yeah, reflected the time. When you think BMW and Toyota both went to Formula One, Panos and Audi stayed. So, like, at least the other manufacturers were leaving for uh, another series. For life, I can't think if Nissan popped up anywhere directly after canning that program. No, well, they, they canned their super touring program at the end of 99 as well. So Nissan ended their program after 1999 in a factory involvement, but there were Nissan-powered cars into the new millennium. There are a couple of LMP675 cars ran Nissan engines. There was one car in 2000 and two cars in the 2001 Le Mans 24 Hours, but they're all um, all unsuccessful and not very competitive. We then skip to 2005, and do we all remember Martin Short? Mr. Mosler himself? We only remember him if he's in a Mosler. Let's yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't remember that his Roll Centre racing team um, bought a Delara and tackled LMP1 with a Nissan engine. Did they finish? No, they didn't. They oh. retired after 133 laps of the 2005 event. They had a pretty good driver lineup, though. Michael Crum. Harold Primat and uh, Bobby Verdon Rowe, who, amongst other things, used to drive in the British Touring Car Championship. That's a good little tidbit for next <laughs> next week's trivia at the pub. <laughs> but I guess that was just, um, they weren't really serious efforts from Nissan. They pretty much had no involvement in Le Mans for the 2000s, really. I'm trying to think where they popped up at all during the 2000s. Japan, that's it. They had an Indy Racing League engine program for a little bit but that was probably my far more us based was there a nissan world series by renault equivalent they were behind um the world series by nissan until the mid 2000s when it became when it became formula renault 3.5 but um yeah that was pretty much it for the 2000s until the second year of the 2010s when in 2011 nissan announced that they were going to join up with um, Signature Racing to provide engines for their LMP2 program. 
signature then turned into what Alpine is today, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. Yeah, but that Nissan LMP2 engine deal ended up be, ended up being quite um quite successful for Nissan because they won the LMP2 class at Le Mans in. 2011 and then again from 2013 to 2016 before they changed the LMP to engine rules. So at least they were winning when LMP2 was a proper class. Who were their like engine supply competitors in that era in LMP2? They dominated the like the engine entries. So Judd was one. Yeah, that's uh, what I mean. Hon- like like Honda. If there's 18 Nissans and a Jald and a Honda, is it really that much of an achievement? Well, no, no, no. But the, 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 I think the reason was that all the teams picked Nissan because it was the best LMP2 engine. Okay. So, like, Starworks ran the Honda, and they ran it in um, America uh, as well. Level 5, which the um, the dodgy Scott Tucker, um, Marino Franchitti, and Ryan Briscoe actually drove this, sorry, this is 2013 I'm referencing at the moment. But yeah, Honda's it says that like there's a Lotus here on the entry, but I'm pretty sure that did not run a Lotus or any type of Lotus motor. But what yeah. you're saying is if Honda had put any actual effort into it, they would have been the dominant engine in LMP2. Now, what I'm saying is uh, this is Honda 2015 spec F1 engines. So, which is, but yeah. which is still better than a 2022 spec Nissan F1 engine, which doesn't exist. <laughs> Just wait, 2026. Okay. Nissan F1 engine. <laughs> we'll get an RB26 on the F1 grid. Yeah. That'll be cool. But, yeah, no, I like that era of LMP2 before the uh, ACO sold out LMP2. Like, they were the best engine and, like, the dominant choice amongst all the teams. It's, it's the equivalent of the Orica chassis at the moment. Well, we should sum it up with see what you can do when you put your mind to it, Nissan. While they were dominating LMP2, Nissan also had an involvement in quite an interesting car, the uh, the Delta Wing. Do we oh, all remember God. that? <laughs> Are we really going to talk about this atrocity of a car? We are, but it's interesting to remember, of course, that it wasn't supposed to be a sports car at Le Mans. Well, thank God it didn't become an Indy car because that would have been even worse. <laughs> that was that yeah. was Chip Ganassi too pushing that. I want to know yeah, Daniel's well, opinion because he's the he's the uh, like I regard Daniel as the Indy car expert on this podcast. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I remember when the images of the Delta Wing was uh, provided back in, that was 2011, or maybe even the back end of 2010, the iconic uh, committee. It was launched at the Chicago Auto Show on February 10, 2010. Yeah, and, and so that's when IndyCar took expressions of interest for the new chassis, and yeah, Lola put one together, and obviously Delara, and then yeah, this Delta Wing popped up, and when I saw it, I was I was slightly uncomfortable just because it was different, which was kind of <laughs> felt threatened. Con- yeah, yeah. I was like, that's not that's not an indie car. And and you know what I mean, I remember the discussion at the time, everyone was like, Well, how's that gonna get around the hairpin at Long Beach? But uh but it obviously challenged a lot of thinking around it. So when it turned up at Le Mans, what, twenty twelve, twelve months later, I, like I pretty I liked it as a sports car because that it fit that whole garage fifty six thing. 
in the black kind of um, livery with the Nissan down the side. Like, it looked cool. Like, it went, like, it went yeah, okay. The Batmobile. Like, speed one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That car challenged was the back row of the grid. <laughs> well, no, because it qualified, 2012, it qualified, like, 22nd or something. Um, give or take. So, like, it, it, by no means, it wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna beat the LMP2 cars. But it was. I was um, it was competitive in terms of lap times with the LMP2s. Yeah, yeah, like, but it wasn't like it wasn't on pole for LMP2. I think it started 20, 22nd maybe, yeah. give or take. And I think in in warm up, it set a pretty competitive time. So no, no, like it was fine, thanks to Kasumi Nakajima in the Toyota that knocked it out about five hours in, pissed me right off. No, 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 because it was like it was cool. It was something different. Like that's what makes Le Mans, and and that's where this whole way through this story, I'll credit Nissan. They're never never afraid to do something different, and this was a prime case of it. It's a pity it only went to Le Mans once. That circles back to Nissan not really sticking with a in, with a program fully. In their defence, it wasn't their program. The Delta Wing wasn't their program. So you yeah. get Garage Fifty Six once. I think. Very rarely, if ever, someone's got two bites at the Garage 56 for consecutive years. But ironically, it's, and I don't know if you'll tell the story, Luke, but it, this morphed in. Nissan left Deltwing at the end of 2012, and then the um, Nissan IZOD, or however you pronounce it, ZOD, that's the one, they oh. took Bambalwi and ran that the following year. That was the, the Nissan one. That, that they ran, and um, obviously that was the beginnings of what became the uh, 2015 campaign. Yeah. yeah, so fundamentally what happened was, um, as Daniel mentioned, Ben Bowlby, was, he was working for Chip Ganassi at the time, and he designed the car. And while it was aimed at IndyCar initially, and it certainly um, swelled up some interest in the next-generation IndyCar, and I think many people feel that, it basically convinced IndyCar to to get a new car going to replace the um the then current Dallara that they had, but IndyCar never really had seemed to have interest in seriously adopting the Delta Wing. But uh, Don Penoz was interested in the car, and he broke at a meeting with the ACO, who were who were keen on the car as well, and that's where the invitation for it to become a um the Garage 56 entry that's where that came from. Nissan weren't um, overly keen initially and apparently needed to be talked in by Michelin to um, be involved in the project because M- Michelin was right was right behind the Delta Wing project right from the start in 2011. But as we've just said, they, they, they did Le Mans in 2012. But after then, uh, Don Penoz took the Delta Wing in-house and he developed it further with a, with a Mazda unit while um, Bowlby, as, as, as Daniel said, uh, he joined Nissan. There was actually poached. Poached. poached, poached, yes. But from from there, actually, there ended up being a lawsuit filed by Penoz against Nissan and Ben Bowlby for using Delta Wing IP in the um, not only the Nissan Zod Le Mans car but also the Blade Glider road car concept. But um, that ended up being settled out of court very quietly. I was going to say hard to argue with any of that. Like just visually, you look at all of them, and um, yeah, Don had a case. It seemed to get settled very quietly, that one, so you wonder what money went where. I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure Nissan wrote a check. One interesting thing about the Delta Wing, though, was it won Autosports Pioneering and Innovation Award in 2012. 
obviously just before the bust up. But the de- the delta wing from there, I mean, that ran pretty much through to the end of the ALMS run by Penoz. And and once again, with, with some relative success, I remember Catherine Legg um, driving that. I think Marina Franchitti had a couple more cracks at it. And yeah, like it, it actually, I think it ran through the first year of the IMSA combination. And then obviously once they went from there, it kind of fell out. It wasn't included in the new rules. I was going to say, it just shows like with Dom Penel's taking it over and the development, sticking with it um, and developing it and refining it. Imagine if they had the resources that Nissan had, if they stuck with it for that long, could have they taken it further than what Dom Penel's did? I guess Nissan weren't keen to continue with that sort of um, program, I guess, because they didn't own it. Mm. That's pro- that's probably the fundamental reason, I, I would guess. A couple of interesting things about the Delta Wing program. All American races had been out of the uh, race car business for a few years, but the uh, the Gurneys said they couldn't resist being involved in the Delta Wing program when, they, um, when it was presented to them. Uh, Highcroft Racing ran the car. Of course, they ran the um, David Brabham, amongst others, in the ALMS in the late 2000s. And the the tub for the Delta Wing ended up coming from the Aston Martin AMR1 LMP1 car from 2011. Of course, that was a program which was quite similar to the Nissan program that we're going to get to shortly. Well, it was a better-looking car, the Aston Martin. Let's just get that out of the way first. And it sounded better. Uh, Ray Malik Limited ended up providing the engine for the Delta Wing, and it was a 1.6-litre four-cylinder turbo engine, largely similar to their um, to the touring car Chevrolet engines they were using in the World Touring Car Championship. And the the actual engine that was in the was in the Delta Wing came from a Nissan Duke. Oh, another awful car. For <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, even I won't defend that one. What about people now who own a Nissan Duke who are big fans of the podcast? I don't have a problem with them as a road car, right? If you like to take your Nissan Duke down to your poker game, that's fine by me. <laughs> but the fact that it was in any way related to something that was meant to race on a racetrack is abhorrent. And it was said that the Delta Wing was only using 55% of the fuel of the V8 P2 cars. Which yeah, is quite impressive. Probably, probably making 55% of the power, so there you go. Well, as we've said, so, so Nissan had 2013 off, and as we mentioned, the Nissan Zod was developed by Nissan in-house for the 2014 Le Mans 24, hour, 24 hours, where it ran again as the Garage 56 car. And obviously, the interesting thing about this one was that it was a, um, it had an electric engine and an internal combustion engine inside and one of the um one of the goals of the program was to do a full lap on electric power which ex- which it succeeded in in qualifying what what an achievement yeah well it didn't do enough laps in the race to um yeah don't let's let's <laughs> skim over this that was that broke my heart too yeah well as you said yeah they 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 only they only did five laps in the race before um they had a transmission problem one of the selling points on the car when they originally built it was they said that both the gasoline and electric power plants will run through the same five-speed gearbox that transfers the power to the ground. Yeah, well, that gearbox works so well. Can't even do five laps of Le Mans. I can't imagine that car would have had a very complicated gearbox. Here you go. Defending Nissan and Xeon again, it, um, 
achieved 300 kilometres an hour down the straight. Yes, it did, yeah. Which, which is pretty impressive. The one saving grace of Zeod. And what, the car qualified in a 3 minute 50.1. So that's, yeah, that put it in and around the um, LMP2s. So there you go, Brock. It's, when, when it worked, the no, package look, was relatively speedy. Look, it is fast. And if any one of us was strapped in the passenger seat of that car, we would have been terrified. Do we know what Zeod stood for? Failure in Japanese. <laughs> Zero emission on demand. One of the interesting things on the Zeod was it was the first major manufacturer to use a three-cylinder engine in major international motorsport, according to Nissan. They said they were aiming to maintain their position as industry leaders in focusing on downsizing, and they said that lessons learned from the development of this engine will be seen in Nissan road cars of the future. I guess one thing it does show with the with the Delta Wing through to the Zeod and leading into the LMP1 program they were willing to do things differently, and at least they were investing money in sports car racing. Yes, they do things differently, but they don't stick with it and pursue it and turn it into something great. They sort of just go, oh, here you go. It's not very good, and it can only do five laps, and then that's it. And then they pop up later with another ridiculous program. What do you think, Luke? Oh, I, th- I think I think they were looking for ways to get attention rather than... I suppose building up experience to go into a LMP1 program, but as we'll see, even with that, they they were going against the grain, trying different things. I think they were prioritising making a splash by doing something different. Maybe they they had the goal of the 2015 Le Mans program in mind, and the 2012 and 2014 efforts were supposed to just gain attention and build up interest. But no doubt they wanted them to be a little bit more successful than they were. Don't you think they should have hung around and made them successful? Y- yes, yes. But I, I think in terms of the Zeod and the Delta Wing, they were just, the end goal was 2015 and LMP1. Now, definitely they should have hung around to make that successful, but I guess they never saw the Zeod or the Delta Wing as more than one year prospects just to make a splash. I think those two programs worked in terms of attention i don't know <laughs> we're <laughs> talking about it now so was it, it worked yeah it? but but we're not talking about it in a positive way <laughs> we're not we're not having this conversation going i aspire to one day own a delta wing no no but i suppose in terms of branding it looked like they were trying to be i suppose is green the right word or efficient mm. particularly with the zeod yeah, and while, but, while, while but sure here we are today, and like, do, like, does Nissan have any fully electric road cars at the moment? Nissan Leaf, maybe. So, it's not like they they turned into a Tesla. I mean, like four years later, they're in V8 supercars with big V8s pumping out emissions. So, yeah, I guess in a way that does go against the uh, the image in that respect. I don't know. I suppose I suppose it in terms of the Delta Wing and the Zod, they weren't. I mean, they, they, they weren't competing in a class. They were basically just out there to be seen. It wasn't a good look that the Zeod only did five laps, but it didn't matter that it only did five laps, really, in a racing sense. They'd sort of proven what they wanted to prove. I, I think, thinking about it, so if you had Nissan had two, you know, or a front-running LMP car, 
and it was seriously competitive. And then on the side, they said, oh, we're just going to run this Delta Wing thing, you know, as a bit of a publicity stunt and, and test the technology. It's sort of go, okay, that's fine. Or if Nissan started up, you know, like a separate arm that was, you know, like a different name and it was like their experimental company that ran under the arm of Nissan and ran it under that banner, I would take it differently. But just for Nissan, with all their heritage, to rock up to Le Mans and their only effort is this awful car frustrates me (laughs) endlessly. Don't call it a Nissan, you know, just call it something else. So, you know, when you see Nissan on an entry list, you're expecting, you know, Nissan from IMSA. You're expecting Nissan from Japanese GT. You're expecting, like, you know, Nissan that produced the Godzilla and did all that cool stuff. You're not expecting Nissan that's running a car that's 20 seconds a lap off the pace, getting in everyone's way. It's ugly. Nobody really likes it. Well, I don't. Like, it's just not Nissan. It's not what they should be. Well, we're gonna we're gonna come on and talk much more about that Nissan GTR LM Nismo right after this break. Breakthrough Health and Wellness. The Breakthrough 60-Day Challenge combines a highly effective weight loss program and a high-end personal fitness experience without costly memberships. In a culture of flash workouts and going hard, Breakthrough have taken a more sustainable approach and developed the perfect program that will not only get you fit and healthy, but also help you shed stubborn weight that you thought was never going to budge. Breakthrough will offer new inspiration and goals that will lead to life changes you can easily maintain. Each week, Breakthrough offer interesting muscular endurance, strengthening and functional movement exercises with a training app that will rival any workout you have done at the gym. For more information, visit mybreakthrough.com.au. That's M-Y-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U. And follow Breakthrough on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to the podcast on the Nissan GTR LM Nismo from the 2015 Le Mans 24 Hours. So we'll move on now to that um, that Nissan program from 2015. So what did we think of a Le Mans sports car being launched during an ad break in the Super Bowl? It's different. Expensive. It's, yeah, that's that, that, that's the other thing about the Super Bowl. It's not cheap. It's also not as cool as Le Mans. But I, I think that launch showed so much about the project in terms of, A, it was heavily, heavily funded through the North American arm of the program. It was funded basically around its marketing and innovation um, kind of uh, frame rather than, let's say, a pure just racing pedigree, which I think that not sowed the seeds because I think that's the only way they were getting the program up, but it kind of showed you the direction of where it was going and, um, you know, obviously the key drivers behind it. Yeah, apparently Nismo originally wanted a European launch for the car, but obviously Nissan US put a bit of um, bit of pressure on and, um, yeah, the Super Bowl angle was, um, was taken. 
a case of Bud Lights under the table. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly could have been. But uh, Jan, Jan Martinborough was um, the guy who who drove the car or in the filming of, of the ad. It, it included he did a lot of first and second gear running in cold, damp conditions. And uh, it was it was during the filming of this that uh, their their new extract gearbox um, gave up, but they put it down to saying they they said they weren't overly displeased about it because you know they were simulating safety car <laughs> safety car laps. I think that's one of the first that uh, manufacturers come out and said they were actively uh, practicing <laughs> safety car conditions. Well, one of the other things with that they actually had originally. Um, planned to actually launch the car at the end of 2014 they'd rented out sebring there were reports at the time that uh that the car the car was behind on development whether that's true or not i'm not sure because you'd think maybe the um the super bowl aspect would have come into it by then too so although the car did end up very much behind on development maybe that wasn't the actual reason at that point but there'd been plenty of rumors about what the car would look like leading up to the announcement. And it ended up being some Porsche fans that spied the car testing at uh, at Circuit of the Americas in Texas. And they managed to get some photos of the, um, of the car lapping. And although they were very grainy, well, you could obviously see that it looked, looked very much like a front engine car. First of all, like what, what did we think about the prospect of a front engine car in 2015? I'll be honest, I don't, I don't hate this car, actually. I know front engines went out of fashion in, like, 1970 for sports cars and F1 cars, but from a look standpoint, the car looks okay. Why you would make a front-engine front-wheel drive sports car, I'm trying to be really nice here. Um, it's very uh, creative, but it, it, compared to the Delta Wing, I really like this car quite a lot compared to the other LMP1 cars that were on track with it. At the same time, I really don't like this car a lot. The prospect for me for a front-engine, front-wheel drive car, I I thought it was pretty cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, and we'll see for good reason, but even with the likes of Toyota, Porsche and Audi, the cars were so similar. So to have someone kind of going against the grain, offering up some new technology, that kind of flows along with some other cars that have been built over the years in racing that on paper they look really good and in theory how it's been designed uh, should work and it just hasn't turned out that way in practicality once it hits the track. So you're, you're right, like it, the, the idea was great and the theory behind it was great and uh, great to see you know, something different. But, um, yeah, it just didn't translate once it hit the track. Well, I think you, you saw, like, once it did get to Le Mans um, as well, part of the concept did definitely work. Like, it was super slippery in a straight line, um, front-wheel driving on a stretcher's legs. The lack of drag um, in a straight line was a massive advantage over the others. I was pretty shocked that they were doing a front-engine car. I mean... Panos had tried it 15 years earlier, and he did, they'd done all right. But I mean, if if there was any any merit to it, someone else would have would have tried it in that time. One really awesome thing that I found out about this car 
was its sort of hybrid system and it had a computer that would decide into braking zones whether it was going to use the conventional brakes or use the um the like drag of the flywheel to slow the car down and so this flywheel that they had was like eight kilos or something like it was really really heavy big thing and when it was like fully spun up in a braking zone I think in a braking zone I'm not an engineer everyone but this is roughly what I heard <laughs> that the, the actual flywheel had to be encased in a vacuum because it would spin up to 47,000 rpm and the tips of the flywheel would actually reach Mach 2 to two times the speed of sound and that's why it had to be encased in a vacuum and obviously um i don't think it ran with a flywheel with the flywheel system on it um which was part of the reason it was so slow but this uh flywheel system that they designed and in theory was going to work um i mean that's insane right like you think of flywheel traveling two times the speed of sound that is pretty cool well, even just the the, the, the concept of, of, like, the technology, like Brock just spoke about, the flywheel, that they changed it, that the front wheels as well, that the 14-inch front tyres, oh, f- sorry, 14-inch wide front tyres versus a 9-inch nine, nine rear um, to do with weight distribution and everything like that to give them better traction and, and whatnot, that's... The, the thought that went into it to get the car to deliver, you, you can't argue argue that. So I guess, yeah, two points. Front engine and front wheel drive ultimately wasn't the issue with the car, like that made it uncompetitive in the end. I wouldn't write off the project, or sorry, put it down to the front drive, front engine um, aspect of it. I think that's, that is a concept actually um, was proven to have some merit which you know didn't get fully um, explored in the project but i think secondly as well the only way nissan were getting this off the ground was by doing something different technology wise um, concept wise and obviously tied to that marketing budget so if they went down and built a conventional you know um, car a bit like toyota or audi i i don't think they would have got the funding approval um, to get it up so it was either do something different or don't do something at all at all which um ultimately didn't uh didn't get them anywhere on track success but i think that was their their only way to get to le mans so to speak see i think that's i think that's a bit strange for for someone like nissan who you know are a motor racing brand and company why would you not be able to get the funding for a car to win le mans but you can get the funding for a, a car that's way out there and probably not going to win Le Mans. I think where where the company was in what when it was announced, what, 2014 or the end of 2013, it was around that kind of, you know, future technology, um, innovation, thinking differently. That's how they were positioned as an organisation. So basing it around this new concept um, was, you know, and using racing as that platform to show that, you know, innovation and Nissan was doing things differently to other manufacturers was how Darren Cox got the project approved and, and how he had to really fight for it. So I think 
without that, um, yeah, it, it they would have just stayed in LMP2. Um, I guess as an it, I guess it, I guess it just shows the different way people go racing and the way different people view it. I mean, I know if I was the big boss of a car company and they wanted to go racing, I'd be saying we're going to win. You know, we're not going to showcase that we can make yeah. a front-wheel drive LMP1 car. We're going to make a rear-wheel drive LMP1 car, and we're going to win the damn race, or at least try. Yeah. Well, here's here's some quotes from Marshall Pruitt and Daily Sports Car from the the early launch of the of the Nissan. Darren Cox said that the brief was, "Don't build me an Audi or a P1 copy." The decision was taken. If you had a new sheet of paper, what car would you build? Let's be honest, Audi have got $200 million in the bank in terms of investing technologies, and Porsche basically almost copied Audi in a lot of respects. We looked at a blank sheet of paper, and the best solution is the engine you see downstairs, which is a V6 twin-turbo, four-wheel drive with the engine in the front. It must be a GTR then. Then it's just a marketing job made easy. I don't know. I, I just I just don't agree. And, and, and it didn't work, so... Ben Bowlby said, we could have copied what Audi, Porsche and Toyota are doing, but but it would have been difficult to beat them by doing that. They've got more experience and have put a lot more resources into the cars. Yeah, but this is Nissan we're talking about. Do they? Do Nissan sit in a in a boardroom and go, we can't match Audi on a racetrack? Of course they can. If they hung around for five years working at it, they would have done what Toyota have done. And then there was Andy Palmer, who was Nissan's executive vice president, but was ultimately gone basically around the time the car was launched. He said, you don't go to Le Mans just to turn up. The brief to the team is to go with something different, go with something that brings new technology, which is transferable to the road car technology, and an approach that is innovative and exciting, and of course, go to win. Well, it was innovative. I don't think it was that exciting. I don't know. It's interesting. I think a lot of people would agree. If you look at Nissan, where they are now, they're not where they were in their glory days. Like, especially when we were all growing up and, you know, everyone refers back to Gran Turismo. But, like, that was the cars and that was Nissan that we all loved and grew up with. And now they're almost unrecognisable. I mean, like, what has happened? And maybe now with these little quotes and sort of insights as to what's going on at boardroom level... Maybe we're seeing where the where they started to shift away from the Nissan we've always known and loved, or in my opinion, anyway. Well, I think in some ways what happened was this car. Yeah, in terms it's, just, of the, it's just not it's not the Nissan from the late nineties. Nissan from late nineties wouldn't have made this car. Could that just be the cycle of the management at Nissan? Um, you know, at the time that the people coming through at the top there were all about innovation and using yeah. motorsport as a tool to do that. And then when that passed, the next fl- fl- flux of them came in and it was like, oh, we're not going to do motorsport. You know, we're not going to push that. We're going to push this because, you know, this is this is where we can get our biggest sales margin um, and biggest sales from. Let, let's not go gung-ho into motorsport. Yeah, it must be, but, you know, like... We are all such one-eyed, you know, bleed motorsport. So when a car company goes from being one of the powerhouses of world motorsport to nothing, essentially, Mm. it's crap. And it has to come from the boardroom. So thumbs down from me. 
I think if you look at the what happened after, like when the program shut, got shut down, Darren Cox got punted, and what even the Australian Nissan program got shut down within two years. Bathurst 12-hour involvement went. It's almost like the um, shockwave that followed through that just obviously um, the management was like, okay, we've had our short time in motorsport. Let's We're almost doing a retreat because, yeah, they did pull back pretty much from all major championships um, that yeah. they're involved in. So, um, so yeah, it was a... A big catalyst, and and but I also think it shows that Darren Cox was such a massive driver of motorsport. And when you think of the e games kind of um, concept that Nissan pioneered uh, as well throughout that phase, even that seems to have disappeared now as well. So it's um yeah, it definitely was a uh, unique time. And once he left, uh, there was a bit of a vacuum of you know motorsport people within the company. As we sit right here right now. Do you class Nissan as a motor racing brand? Not right now. No, you can't. Because they're still active in Super GT mainly, but that's local Japan. That's no different to saying, you know, Holden when they were in Australia and only doing supercars um, for theirs, like just their equivalent of that. So they're, they're active locally, but not on a world stage. I mean, I mean, let's be honest. The most, the most Nissan action in Australian racetracks is the Pulsar series. Twenty plus year old cars. Yeah, so I think it's a travesty. I think it's sad. Whoever is in the boardroom at Nissan has forgotten about the thing, in my opinion, that made Nissan great, which is motor racing. And until they get back to it, they will never be as good as they were. They're not racing people running the company we po- see. Poss- possibly also because they're tied up with Renault. well maybe they, they should have made might, the nissan f1 team rather than the yeah, alpine f1 team they might prioritize the renault or now alpine um well, brand. Then there needs to be some cross branding going on under that umbrella yeah. surely because yeah well, like um, like portion audi do yeah it's just not, it's not good enough man nissan need to nissan need to fix it up still start building some cool cool road cars again some new road cars get some race cars back out and start doing what made Nissan great back to the LMP1 car do you think that they um by wrapping one of the Nismo GTR LMs in a Manchester City soccer team soccer team color scheme and putting it on display at one of their home games do you think it gained them any extra fans I'll I'll say no <laughs> That was one of the things they did. Would it generate people at the soccer ground, sorry, football, depending on who, you, which side of the fence you sit on, would have gone, hey, that's in our team's colours, that's cool. But mm-hmm. unless they knew what Nissan was or they were curious to go research it more, it could have said, oh, that's just a, don't want to say a prototype in the sense of, it's a prototype race car, um, but in the prototype from a manufacturing point of view, um, look and go, oh, that's just, you know, a concept prototype car uh, dressed in our colours. Oh, that's cool. Nissan, Nissan's original driver lineup for the 2015 season was um, was actually quite good. 
they announced their their World Endurance Championship drivers were going to be Mark Janay, Max Chilton, and Jan Mardenborough in one car, Michael Crom, Harry Ticknell, and Olivier Pla in the second car, with Lucas Ordinez, Alex Buncombe, and Sugio Matsuda driving the third car for Le Mans only. So they attracted some quite good drivers for the program. Nissan have always had fantastic driver lineups. Always. One thing with Nissan, if if the car if the car gets a crap result, you can never blame the drivers. <laughs> Seriously, they. I mean, if you look back through history, Nissan always have absolute top shelf drivers. What did you think of the drivers, Daniel? Oh, it was pretty impressive. Like obviously, this project had been in the works for a while, so they'd um, built up, um, you know, some solid ranks in the drivers. So Bunkham had been part of the program for a while. Obviously, Jan Marnebra through the um, the E Games um, program. I think Luke and Ordinez as as well. Um, they brought in Harry Tinknell, which was going to be his big break kind of thing, you know, factory program up from the LMP2. So, um, yeah, there was obviously reflected the excitement around the program and what it could be and obviously a big factory team. So I imagine there was a fair few heartbroken drivers in that as well and obviously Mark Janay that I and obviously never raced the car in the end. So. Yeah. Well, it was around, so they, around the time they announced this driver lineup. There's also reports starting to come in that they're having um, a lot of failures with the car during testing and issues with the hybrid system and the rear and the rear gearbox, giving the team um, some major headaches. And sources were indicating that the car was over 10 seconds slower than an Audi R18 that was um, at the same tests they were doing. Uh, it's also it's also explained early on that Nissan weren't running the front axle connected rear hybrid system and not long after nissan announced that they're going to skip the first two rounds of the 2015 world endurance championship mainly because it's revealed that they've failed the crash test in particular the a roll hoop they'd failed on the front roll hoop and also the door skin had failed the crash test so it was, that was pretty worrying early on well just going back to your point about um you know them having a lot of issues with their hybrid system on it like you look at the same time um around when formula one was using their hybrid system and all the failures and difficulties teams were even having up until currently with um you know regeneration and deployment issues and stuff like that to take something they've obviously designed themselves probably not too far to stretch to to say that they weren't going to face some sort of issues in that system um, in and around that time as it was fairly fairly new and designed for the car um, for it. But, yeah, to come out 10 seconds slower than a car, you know, with or without the hybrid system connected um, for it, it's not a good start. And also one of the side effects of failing the crash test was that it destroyed the chassis. And uh, Ben Bowlby was quoted as saying it was such a violent failure that it went off like a bomb. And the the other part was with, with the cracked door skin. They said they had to completely redesign the door structure and redo the tooling, which cost them a few thousand dollars, a few a few tens of thousands of dollars. They also said that the completed chassis for the crash test cost $170,000, and it was pretty upsetting when that they lost one. But that should be chips to Nissan. Yeah. I mean, come on. 
That's nothing to Nissan, surely. Unless their funding for this program was that limited. Well, it sounds like it was. But also, it sounds like they left it very late. Because they were, they were saying it takes it takes eight weeks to get a car ready for an impact test. What? I mean, so, I mean if $170,000, like, if someone in the Nissan accounts department even noticed $170,000 missing, there's something wrong. They're also saying at this time that the uh, the engine was running behind schedule as well. It was also becoming known that the the real major problem was the ERS unit. They couldn't get the ERS to deploy to the rear wheels reliably, which was affecting their braking. I wonder if it's got something to do with a flywheel going two times the speed of sound. <laughs> and I mean that that became one of the big problems with the car was the was was the brakes. And it was there was just cooking the brakes. And also a few of the drivers were reporting that the car was quite nerve-wracking to drive and they weren't sure what it was going to be doing. They were approaching corners and not knowing if when they turned in what was going to happen. I thought that was normal. That's that's like driving <laughs> my go-kart. <laughs> yep. That'll be like your your NASCAR when you get it going, AB. <laughs> you be going, where's the centre of the wheel? Quick hands. That's what I mean, <laughs> quick hands. And it's around this time also they decide that they're not going to run the ERS at Le Mans and the car would run as a front-wheel drive only. Yeah, that makes sense because the flywheel was meant to assist in the braking by, like, using the engine drag, which is why it spun up to such a ridiculous speed. So by disconnecting it, they they gained the, reli- they gained the reliability of not having a flywheel traveling to space and uh but the side effect was all the cars inertia had to be slowed down through the brakes which just obviously weren't big enough or weren't cooled well enough and the gearbox wasn't reliable either i guess the showed you the major uh you know the combination of issues from all the things i've read as well like by the time they got to le mans and things like that the engine was sorted the gearbox was better, but um, yeah, the the Kerr system was ultimately the um, yeah the big issue that uh, obviously derailed it to the point like you can imagine spending all that time into it, and then um, the only option you've got to race is to disconnect um, probably the biggest performance um, percentage your car's got. So that would have been pretty um, sobering for the team. Uh, Mark Janay, as you touched on earlier, Daniel, he ends up pulling the pin in early May and says he's um, going to step back for Lamar and not race, but he'd still stay with the team in an advisory role. But that was a real shock. Yeah, I think that kind of um, showed the writing on the wall that he didn't want to uh, didn't want to be part of it from a driving sense. So uh, yeah, a bit hard to argue with him. He obviously seen everything going on and was like, I, I don't particularly want to do that. At, 350 kilometres an hour down the Molson. And he was replaced by Russian Mark Shulhitsky, who was a, um, a winner of Nissan's GT Academy, like Mardenborough and Ordinez. But they that meant that they rejigged the driver lineups for Le Mans, with Olivier Pla joining Max Chilton, Max Chilton and Jan Mardenborough in the 23 car, Alex Buncombe, Harry Tinknell and Michael Crom in the 22 car, and Shulhitsky... Ordinez and Matsuda in the in the number twenty one car, which was going to run the 
the 25th anniversary 1990 Le Mans colour scheme. And what, how good did that look too? The one shining light of that weekend. And it looked really good, actually. It looked better than the red car. Yeah, I was like, the car's done up. They, they both looked really good. In May, Ben Bowlby is quoted as saying that, obviously, we'd like to have more time, but we've had three good days of testing here, working through a long list of jobs. Our focus now moves to re-preparation of, of two cars and completing the build of the third car, which is a bit worrying if they're in May and they haven't finished building the third car yet. So they struggled into race week. As we know, obviously, running running without ERS, the car's basically the, the quickest Nissan in qualifying was 20 seconds slower than pole position. Given they knew the cars were going to be uncompetitive going there, should they have bothered going? I think I think by that point, they didn't have a choice. All the funding was aimed at this marketing, um, you know, this marketing angle, and they'd come so far down the the barrel that they like there was no turning back. They just had to turn up. But ultimately, yeah, if there were none of those outside pressures. It would have made sense to um, put it in the truck, go away and spend um, you know, the rest of the year just testing and come back in 2016. But I, I don't think they actually had that opportunity in the end. Anyone else, as Daniel said, that, you know, the the whole marketing plan around it, you know, for, you almost put them in a the corner to race. But, you know, you put it anyone else and, um, yeah, you, you wouldn't take the car there um, for it if it was me. And you know the decision was there. You would put it off 12 months um, to do it if you, if you had the option to, for sure. Uh, absolutely, should not have raced. Car wasn't ready to race. It was embarrassing for Nissan and whoever was in charge of marketing or whoever made that decision should have realised that it's better to delay it 12 months than to be the laughing stock of Le Mans for the next five years. Do you think not running would have cancelled the program there and then? Yes. Yeah, I think that you talk about the Super Bowl commercial, you talked about, you know, all the promotions, everything. Like, it was a marketing-based project. So having nothing to show for it, um, yeah, like, ultimately, it didn't, like, to Brock's point, they ran and it still got canned at the end of the year. But, um, yeah, I think um, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. To that race, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just still reckon it, every effort should have been made to not run the car. You think they would have saved more face doing it that way? Hundred percent. You just say the marketing guys, guys, we're sorry, but it's racing. Racing's complicated. This project's complicated, and it's not ready. We need twelve months. In the meantime, we're going to give you twelve months of solid marketing content for testing more promotional events, we're going to get the car sorted and we're going to come back in 12 months and instead of being tw 20 laps down, we're going to be in the top five and you're going to get tons of good marketing. And we're going I'm to sell um, tons of road cars because of it. I'm, I'm actually surprised and it probably came down to a safety issue um, in the end, but even just in practice or qualifying, they didn't have like one go with the um, curves connected. Because, like, that car without it was half a car. 
So even if they could have just strung one lap together, um, Nissan Z odds kind of style, um, just to show its potential, I think that would have gone a long way to keeping the project going. But the fact that it ne- there was nothing tangible to show for it um, was was the hard part. So obviously it must have been a safety issue to prevent it. But I just I would have thought that that was an opportunity, just you know sticky tape it together and try and get like one lap out of it just to show the car's potential because that would have been fascinating as a direct comparison to the other cars to show the potential or translate the on paper potential to um you know something on track yeah and 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 to that like you think about it if they did do that that the marketing they could go with you know we set the foundation here we showed what the car could do come back next year and watch what we can do and you know that would have given potentially 12 as brock said you know 12 12 months worth of content of how they could flow on from that that one lap that they could do yeah because the car was in a straight line um i can't remember the specifics of it in a straight line it was like i think the fastest car down the mall side just because obviously v6 twin turbo no um like front wheel drive it was pretty efficient it just obviously had zero punch out of corners and things like that so um yeah, it's like, you know, part of the concept was shown. It just was obviously hidden hidden under the lack of um, a curve system. They also they, they also had problems with the suspension system, which I said was affecting the car. They couldn't run over curbs, which were and that was linked to the ERS not being run, but it meant that that they sort of they couldn't keep the car online. Okay, which was costing so them a lot on. of time. They can't stop it. They can't accelerate it. They can't use curbs. Why on earth would you enter the car into the race? Because it already been paid for. It's just, but it's um, just um, terrible. Imagine going to that meeting with the CEO of Nissan and say, "Hey, the you know X amount of million dollars you spent in the last twelve months doing this program, and um, it doesn't work, and yeah. uh, we can't yeah. even do a, a full full lap because the suspension's going to break because we couldn't get the ERS system to work to the rear rear wheels. Um, yeah, like it would be. There's the door out. You go. Well, well, Brock, you're gonna you're gonna fall off your chair, but um, they couldn't get the door working, the going door working, um, at one of the stints as well. So um, yeah, it's just just it's, to add to your. It's just a failure. From top to bottom, um, I, unbelievable that Nissan would allow something like this to happen. I know I'm talking about it like it's the worst thing ever, but I mean this is Nissan, and I hold them as they should be. And it's Le Mans too. Held held to a high standard, and this missed the mark in every category, in every way, and it was a sham. One thing that couldn't be argued was the. Um the effort the team went to, to to get the cars on the grid, the the guys working on it. Uh, ben Bowlby was quoted leading up to the race saying that they were averaging 14-hour days and often it was nearer 20, nearer 20 hours a day and he compared it to being like they were doing boot camp. It's nothing to do with the team or the driver's fault. I mean, they all, I mean, they're all clearly extremely smart people. This is all boardroom. Must have been demoralising, though, if you're a mechanic on the car or a driver on the car. And, I mean, you, you knew 
you knew you were in for a busy 24 hours if you were a mechanic and you knew you were in for an unsuccessful 24 hours if you were a, um, a driver or in upper management. Be like being a house mechanic. You know, you just know the next 12 months we're just stuff. We're just going to be last. Yeah, it's awful, but but it all comes from the top down, you know. It's how it is. It'd be like working on AB's go-kart. No, no matter what, you're leaving without a result. <laughs> well, especially in the last four years. <laughs> but uh, no, it all comes from the boardroom. And, you know, they say water. Water flows downhill. Well, um. It's the CEOs, mate. It's the penguins in the boardroom that have caused this. They've got to take the blame for it, in my opinion. Well, in terms of the three cars, the uh, the number 23 car, that struggled on. It almost made it to the end of the race, but it had a transmission failure towards the end. The retro number 21 car, that, that went out with suspension failure. Well, the number 22 car, it did technically make the finish. It crossed the line. But um, it had lost too much time during the race to be classified. So they did technically make the finish of the race. And Darren Cox was quoted as afterwards as saying, I'm feeling very proud of the whole team right now. For sure, we have had problems, but that's what happens when you innovate. Our engine is strong and we were able to quickly fix the other problems that we had. We have learned an incredible amount at Le Mans and our battles will only make us stronger. And well, then it's by also- never coming back. <laughs> They didn't know that at the time because <laughs> it's also mentioned that they'd all already started designing the 2016 car and several several team members were were quoted as saying they estimated the the project was five to eight months behind schedule. Look, there's no doubt if they kicked on with this and we're still going on with it now, you know, sort of like what the other manufacturers did for like extended periods of time, I reckon they would have got somewhere they got good enough people. They clearly got smart enough engineers. They've done enough in the past. They would have got there, but they just no commitment. They just bailed. At the at the end of the 2015 race, that obviously they were talking about saying, well, they were at that stage they were going to do the rest of the 2015 World Endurance Championship, as well as coming back into 2016. Did you think they'd come back? The only thing I cared about was Porsche victory. <laughs> and that's my honest answer. I don't really remember what I thought one, about it. You got a one, two, three. Exactly. And uh, it was it was a great day. As every Lamar one by Porsche is a great day. I am. Um, I was hopeful, but it didn't take too long for that announcement to come through that they were going to opt out of the remaining WC races. So by this stage, there was a bit of a pattern they pulled out of the first couple of races. They had a bad showing at Le Mans, and then they pulled out of the remainder. So I think I was still in the back of my mind, or sorry, in the front of my mind, hopeful and confident that they'd bounce back. But there were some sneaking suspicions coming in now, going, well, where's this headed? If they're pulling out after racing now, what's what's the long-term options here? But, I'm like, I wanted them in there. For your point earlier, Luke, like, with Toyota struggled as well in 2015, not to the same extent as Nissan, but they went from WEC champions in 2014 to being like eight or nine laps down over the length of Le Mans, and they bounced back strongly in 2016. So I was I was kind of like you know hopeful and uh, trying to be positive about Nissan um, sticking around in the sport. 
Yeah, I, I personally wasn't confident after Lamar. I didn't see how you could come back from that. It was that embarrassing, was it? <laughs> the only oh, way is to leave with your bag, yeah, your I head just, in I, a bag. I just didn't see how, given how wrong they'd got it, um, and how many problems they'd had. I thought the 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 only the only answer would be to do a completely different car, which it didn't sound like they were prepared to do, or they'd have to do something more conventional, which they didn't seem like they wanted to do. On, on that though, like hindsight's a great thing, but it it was obvious that they were trying to innovate too many things at once, and the time frame that they gave them from the start of the project to the end obviously wasn't enough time to get it done to the point of where they needed it. Would it have been better to do a stepped approach to have uh, a concept of, you know, okay, we're going to innovate this part of the car first. Okay, so we're going to sort of copy what everyone else is doing here with the end goal in, you know, two years, three years of having our vision of this so then we can continually chip away at the parts to get it right and then get there instead of throwing all the innovations in in one go and just what happened with them there in 2015. There was some movement after Le Mans. Um, as Daniel touched on earlier, Darren Cox left the team, well, left the, left the manufacturer as a whole, and they first announced they'd missed the next World Endurance Championship race at the Nürburgring, where they'd already said they were going to run the rest of the year without ERS in the World Endurance Championship, which, as at Le Mans, left them effectively racing as an LMP1 light car, like the Rebellions, but with the LMP1 hybrid sort of weight and penalties and things like that. So after pulling out of Nürburgring, they ended up later on announcing they were going to withdraw from the championship as a whole and come back in 2016. Nissan then continued the testing and they they tested it um, at the Circuit of the Americas. And then later on in the year, they went to the NOLA test facility, which I believe that hosted an IndyCar race in 2015, didn't it, Daniel? Yes, correct. Well, uh, Nelson PK Jr. was someone who got to drive the Nissan there. He tested that day with Mimo Rojas and Bruno Junquera as well as Tinknell, Mardenborough and Matsuda also drove the car. But that's an interesting trio having a test of the car there that day. Is it Junquera or Junquera? I've always said Junquera. Daniel's the expert. Yeah, no, I think it's I think I think the proper Brazilian pronunciation is Junquera. But Or is it a silent J, you know, like Unquera? Great question. I had um that as as with anyone's when they go to America they just go to the lowest common denominator so I think even his nickname was Junkie for a while so <laughs> I was going to say Paul Page told me in the 2001 Kart series that his name was Bruno Junquera so I'm happy to yeah. go with that <laughs> Paul Page what a legend there was no um, uh, team orders for old Nelson when he was out there testing or he didn't crash it on purpose <laughs> did he on a test day. <laughs> Maybe that's what ultimately cancelled the program. <laughs> Part of the deal that had been announced for 2016 was there was going to be a Nismo-designed battery-based ERS system, and that was that was due to be tested again at NOLA early in 2016. 
but there were reports that the Nissan, the Nismo ERS system was falling well short of what was needed. And to make matters worse, the system wasn't going to be ready for track testing until March, which was just before the 2016 World Endurance Championship was due to start. So based on that, on the 22nd of December 2015, Nissan announced that they were going to withdraw from the World Endurance Championship and cease the complete project. The quote in the press release was that the team worked diligently to bring the vehicles up to the desired performance levels. However, the company concluded that the program would not be able to reach its ambitions and decided to focus on developing its longer term racing strategies. <laughs> what racing strategies? Please. <laughs> They're still working on them. One other part of the pullout, which was uh, not very good, was that... Uh, 40, the 40 employees at the Indianapolis-based facility that uh, ran the program were notified, were notified by email that the program had been cancelled, yet many of the staffers were on vacation for Christmas holidays and away from work. So news of the firing came from a press release they would have seen on the news. Well, I hope they got picked up by some proper race teams, eh? And also those who did turn up for work that morning were barred access to the building and senior officials who were who were caught by surprise had to call and or inform had to call and inform the sudden dismissals for all that worked at the facility. Unlike the Japanese too, unless that was the American are doing that, but um, it's very surprising. One other aspect of the 2016 pullout, which I've in my research I saw mentioned, was that there were some technical changes in 2016 for LMP1, which included fuel flow rule changes and a delivery restriction at Le Mans of the hybrid power to 300 kilowatts. It would have would have meant Nissan would in many ways had to build a not a completely new car but make a lot of changes compared to the 2015 car which is maybe what it needed but also in a way they were sort of starting again. I think they were going to have to start again anyway realistically. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly under the skin, the car, there's no way it was going to run anything like the same configuration. Do you think, do you think Nissan's failure, do you think it scared off other manufacturers from, from entering LMP1? I think it scared everyone that laid eyes on it, including little children that were at the track <laughs> that left in tears. <laughs> Remembering yeah. the failure of the Aston Martin AMR1 a few years earlier as well. Yeah. I don't know if it scared anyone. Um, away because like realistically who who else was looking to join top level prototypes with a front with a front engine front wheel drive car (laughs) yeah well just in general so like part like look at that 2015 season also we need to look at this regardless it didn't matter because the car was that far off it didn't matter what year nissan went but ultimately they chose to go in the biggest performance step forward that that class had ever seen like the development of the Audi and the Porsche for that 2015 season was like the biggest step year on year um the LMP1 class had ever seen so like I think that just heightened the difference and all the negative press around it and that so ultimately like I I don't think there was anyone else who was looking to join it to be scared off but I think it more reinforced opinion too that um the two German brands were just so far ahead of the game that, um, you know, it was going to take something fairly extraordinary to um, knock them off. 
I think it re- I think like you said it reinforced that Porsche and particularly Audi had so many years experience built up that it was going to take a major commitment from any new manufacturer to get anywhere near them and it was going to take a few years to build up to that anyway you you, you couldn't come in and necessarily be on the money well Nissan even really admitted it before they started this program they said they went on such a radical path because they'd seen how much money Audi and Porsche had invested in their current program yeah. and the the current design of the cars and everything that they didn't feel they didn't think they had the resources to match them if they copied what they did yeah they're looking for a more efficient way of doing it yeah cheaper i.e i.e cheaper or insert cheaper there a cheaper program good thing they didn't copy their emissions targets yeah well (laughs) maybe that's maybe that's why they didn't win Yeah. Well, that, actually, that brings up the next point. I was going to say the, the, the 2014 to 2020 LMP1 rule set, was it just too expensive? Or did Dieselgate sort of cloud? Because obviously Audi pulled out in, in 2016, Porsche pulled out in 2017, which ended the class effectively. Toyota ran ran their car for another couple of years unchallenged. But was it was it just ultimately too expensive, or did Dieselgate and the Porsche and Audi pullouts does that cloud it a bit? I think um, Audi and Porsche being wiped out because of the emissions thing with VW left Toyota, and then any manufacturer looking to get in is like these guys have like five years development on us, and this rule set is coming to its end in the next few years based on history. So what's the point? Why would you join? I wouldn't. Yeah, I I think it was a combination of like a perfect storm. So Dieselgate definitely like that that trimmed the Audi and Porsche program in um, 16 and 17, and then obviously led or contributed to their pullout. But I think also the LMP1 regulations had just grown and evolved to a point that it wasn't sustainable. So yeah, I think. It was the combination of two that led to the the demise. Um, it was coming one way or another, and it was probably just expedited by diesel dieselgate closing that off. So, and also you think of the abruptness of Audi pulling out as well, like that was that was short and sweet. Like from the announcement to them going was what six months or something. Um, yeah, I think it just took the wind out of the the sails and any momentum. Do you think, obviously, the, the new um, Le Mans hypercar rules, that they've got balance of performance written into the regulations. Theoretically, balance of performance would have helped Nissan if it was in at the time. And a couple of years earlier, in 2011, it would have helped Aston Martin. See, but if Nissan were in there now with this 2015 car, the balance of performance would mean the Toyota has to be slowed down to slower than an LMP2 car. Fundamentally, so, yes. How do you do that? Yeah. I saw I think the rules would be different. Yeah. I think I think they would have brought in a front-engined LMP class and just, <laughs> like, pushed Nissan off the cliff and gone, we just can't help you. I don't even want to look at it. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's one of the dangers of balance of performance as well. If, say, a Nissan-style entry did come along and it's that far off the pace, I mean, how far do you balance the performance given a car's that much off the pace? You don't. You just kick it off the cliff and walk off. Yeah, or or you speed up the other car rather than pulling the other one back. If that makes sense. So, 
The Nissan can't be sped up. Well, you could take some weight out of it and do some things. So you know what you do? You convert it to you turn it around so it's a rear wheel drive. That's what you do. And you right. and you in, and you put a Toyota engine in it, Toyota gearbox, and then you, you send it on its way backwards. We should point out, I guess, also that um, the Nissan story didn't didn't exactly end after the 2015 Le Mans 24 Hours because in 2017 the Bicolis LMP1 team uh, oh. started started running Nissan engines in their in their LMP1 cars. They but ran that for two seasons. Let's be honest, that Bicolis is the biggest LMP failure since the Nissan. Yes. Yep. Yep. And it ran the as we said, it ran the Nismo engine out of the um the gtr yeah they've they've run a few engines though yeah. none of them all worked terrible car awesome looking car mega livery yeah very cool car but awful car but uh do you guys ever lie lie asleep at night wondering what happened to those nissans i'm sure brock does oh yeah <laughs> So, yeah, I do, Adam, actually. It's been bothering me for, for years. Tell me, Luke. Well, the, to be, the, the, there were some photos that did the rounds on the internet a few years later, and they, they were never verified as far as I could find out. But there was um, there were parts that looked like they were from the LMP1 car sitting in a dumpster out the back of a warehouse in uh, Indianapolis. And there was also a shot of a complete car sitting out the back, surrounded by garbage and some metal fencing, and a forklift that uh, could have been a show car. Like it looked like the real deal from a distance, but um, there was no reference to when the pictures were taken. But that'd surely have to be a show car. I can only assume Nissan crushed them. Surely. Yeah. Surely they would have. There's won. no way they weren't. They were not show cars. They had to be show cars. <laughs> You'd think they would keep one just for, you know... For the good there. memories. Oh, no, for the memory of... Remember <laughs> when we did that? Do you do you think Nissan will ever come back to Le Mans? Or do you think, or particularly at the moment, do you think, given the Nissan-Renault alliance, that the um, the Alpine program is um, removing any hope of them coming back? I think if they come back as part of Renault, or Alpine, sorry, Alpine, whatever you call it, It'll be a bit of a cross-branding exercise, which is probably the best thing for them to do, um, to get their name back out on racetracks. I think if Nissan come back to Le Mans and it has anything to do with Nissan running it, it'll be a half-cocked effort that lasts 12 months, fails, and we won't see him again for another five years. That's my prediction for Nissan at Le Mans. They will return to Le Mans and they'll win it. I hope they do, Daniel. I'm more than happy for them to. That's in the next 20 years, but I reckon they're, um, they'll, uh, they'll return and I think ultimately they'll be successful. They'll join Mazda, they'll join Toyota, the Japanese brands, winning Le Mans. I can see them coming back with a GT car first. You don't think I, LM, LMDA? I think the scar's too raw at the moment. But the whole way through, they can do a good engine, so that's all they need. Maybe maybe they need to link up with a um yeah with a chassis manufacturer or link up with a team to prepare the cars because one of the er- one of the early um quotes that Darren Cox said when the program was first announced was um because obviously all American races helped with sort of the build of the cars but Darren Cox stressed that it was a Nismo Nissan effort 
and he said he said that we're not um we're not employing an RML or a TWR to run the cars. It'll be a Nissan entry. Maybe they should have done that. Employed a race team to run the cars. But Nissan should be a race team. When did Nissan stop being a race team? Like, what the hell is going on? We had two years of COVID, and now we're talking about Nissan like they're not a racing team. I can't deal with this anymore. Well, well, were, were they a race team with the R three ninety one, the R three ninety GT one? Yeah, yes, I reckon that, that that was. But that but that was TWR running them. Yeah, but it was it was a Nissan car, you know, like it was. Oh yeah, that 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 that's what I mean. Like, like for instance, Penske with Porsche. It'll, yeah, it'll, like it'll those Pe- yellow Penske things. running the cars. Oh, but even under LM LMDH with the Penske Porsche tie up. Yeah. Penske will run the cars, but they'll, they'll be Porsches. So it's it's like employing Nissan getting a, a race team to run the cars. It's customer and, sport almost, but on a more factory level type deal. That someone's yeah. come in to run the cars for them, but it's all designed from the factory. Oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's customer sport, though. But it's, sort of it, sort of to that that kind of thing without being the customer thing. There, it's a full, fully fledged factory effort, but Penske aren't designing the car. It's designed from Porsche, and they're going, "Here you go, here's the car. This is how it's built. You run it." But, but you guys see, don't don't see Alpine. The Alpine program is blocking a Nissan a Nissan effort. No. Well, it'd be interesting to see what that Alpine program turns into. The Alpine yeah. program's a weird thing, anyway. Like, what was wrong with Renault? Wasn't it something about? Alpine's going to be the sports brand or something. It's almost like Jaguar for Ford. Thinking back yeah, to yeah. another successful venture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't expecting that. Then you got me there. I thought he was being serious. <laughs> well, no, no, yeah, similar, similar branding exercise. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so bottom line, the Nissan GTR LM Nismo, was it worth it? Better to have loved and lost and never to have loved at all. So I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it. Just pity that that approach didn't, we didn't get to see its full potential. I think that's what it leads me yeah. to, that there was some untapped potential in it. Yeah, Co- concept was great, like the theory behind it and everything came for there, but the execution from the starting phase of, testing and everything else that to the finished product when it got out to there it just wasn't executed properly and you know that comes back to funds or um you know how the project was managed going back to nissan and ninsmo back in japan um yeah it's definitely wasn't executed well i think if you don't have the time or funding to win at the top level then don't enter the top level so (laughs) you know (laughs) If you don't have the intention of hanging around until you're going to get on top of it, don't bother. But I will say in closing um, that I've been super harsh on Nissan. Um, <laughs> but, but Nissan, we we want you to do great things. We know you can do great things. So please just start building cool cars again and go win some damn races because that's what we want to see. I don't think it was worth it. I can see what they were trying to do, and I suppose if they were saying they didn't have the resources or the budget to to challenge 
Porsche and Audi with with a sort of a normal design, then you're sort of taking a punt that you're going to do all this alternate technology and go on an alternate route. It's like you're throwing a dart and hoping this sort of different approach will, will work for less money, where I think maybe what they should have done is they should have built a, a, a copy of a Porsche or an Audi and may, maybe you wouldn't have won, but you could have built up some experience and some some knowledge and then maybe 2017, 2018, then have built the front engine, front wheel drive car. They were basically throwing throwing a dart at a dartboard and hoping hoping they got a bullseye. I don't even think they hit the dartboard, Luke. <laughs> I reckon it's those ones that goes whistling past the dartboard and like lands in the in the drywall behind. <laughs> so I think we'll finish off with an ominous quote from Andy Palmer when the Nissan GTR LM Nismo was first sort of released early in 2015. He was quoted as saying, believe me, I think this is the car that will go down in the annals of time and be one of those cars which will be long remembered, not only for the fact that it will have won Le Mans, but also that it reset the real meaning of Nismo as a link between success on the track and success on the road. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. It didn't work out quite like that. Okay, well, that will about do us for this podcast. But unlike the GDR LM Nismo, we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks to Daniel, Adam and Brock for joining me and thank you to Breakthrough Health and Wellness for their continued support. Make sure you visit our Facebook and Instagram pages where we're continually putting up photos from over three decades of attending local and international motor races. Thank you for listening and we'll join you again soon.